On this week's episode, we welcome Sam Faddis. You know, I was so honored to be a part of the United States delegation to the World Cup and Qatar. What a spectacular event. You know, Sam Faddis, you are a, uh, soccer is a part of your DNA with you and your kids. I guess I never realized what an impact and what soccer meant to so many undeveloped countries. They have such an identity with it, man. It's serious. Yeah, uh, it, it, it makes the Super Bowl pale in comparison, right? When the World Cup's going on, the world shuts down. Wherever you are, every little cafe, everybody's everybody's watching. And, and and it really is the world's game. I mean, you travel all over the world, and if there's an empty lot, even in the poorest neighborhood, there's some kids out there with a ball, and they've set up a pitch, and, you know, they're playing. Uh, fantastic sport. I played. I won't pretend to have been any good, but I also coached, and I enjoyed that, and hopefully was a little better at that. You know, I think what sometimes we lose sight of is that the World Cup decision to go to Qatar, a Qatar, was made on the watch of Bill Clinton. It seemed like ages ago. How is it that a small country up until the 70s, undeveloped, third world country, I mean, the world's safest country, how was it able to bring the World Cup to Qatar, the first in the Arab world, and the last we'll probably see for another 30 or 40 years? Yeah, well, it says a lot for them for their strategic thinking, right, and their foresight, because they've got big plans. They're obviously developing very quickly, and they saw a long time ago what this would would mean to them. I mean, you're talking about being there. The world is there, and the eyes of the world are on it. There is, there is. Uh, I'm a big fan of all kinds of sports, but let's be real. There, there is no sport on the planet that has the pull that soccer does. And and and, and this operative. I know we're talking about issues other than intelligence. I mean, it's such a skill set. When I saw some of those athletes use their head to bounce the ball into the net, I mean, what athleticism, what skill, what genius. It's something that you see with kids that started playing soccer when they were in the single digits of their age, and they play it all the time. Like Sam said, any of the remote areas of the world that I worked in, in, in countries all over, whether it's Asia or Latin America, South America, kids are playing soccer. And when we would show up there to do something in a remote area, you took like a case of soccer balls with you because you could always get the kids focused on stuff like that. And then you end up learning and, and meeting a lot of young kids around where you're, wherever you're working in the remote part of the country. It's a universally accepted neutral thing. Everybody likes soccer overseas. Uh, it is certainly a healing sport. You know, Sam, you had the most fascinating article in A&D Magazine on China and Iran. Talk about it. I'm sorry, say again? Your, your article, your latest article in A&D on China and Iran. Well, I think you're talking about, we're talking about the disturbances in in in, in China and and the the chaos and what we're looking at is is what may be a a, a revolution uh, ongoing in China and we are kind of seeing the same thing in Iran. Uh, what I wish we were seeing from this administration is somebody paying attention to either not just paying attention to these things, that's the wrong emphasis. What I wish is that we saw the United States of America, which is supposed to be the shining city on the hill, 
beacon of light, stands for liberty, democracy, and freedom. I wish we saw us standing up for those principles and coming down cleanly on the side of the people who are fighting for the right things in both places. But you know, the Chinese just signaled literally on Thursday that they may compromise with the protesters on COVID. Uh, should we take that seriously or is it propaganda? No, look, I, first of all, we should understand that from the Chinese government perspective here, this is not really about COVID, right? This is about, same as we saw would-be autocrats in this country using COVID as an excuse to stomp all over people's personal rights. We are seeing Xi Jinping use COVID as an excuse to crush the power of, of people and organizations and influences in this country that he regards as a threat to the Communist Party. Too many people making too much money, getting too close to the West, threatens the old way, the old guard of the Communist Party. So we're going to lock them down, crush them. That's why they don't care if it hurts business or it hurts productivity, because that's not the point. The point is to, to, to crush the opposition. But what he's, what he's seeing now is that people are not just meekly sneaking away into the corners and shutting up, they're fighting back. Now, let's be real, this is still communist China and they are capable of massive brutality. So maybe there are people behind the scenes next to Xi saying, you need to lighten up, buddy, you need to compromise. Maybe we're about to see something really bloody and really, really ugly. We're kind of dancing along the knife's edge on that. Uh, Mr. Um, Key's uh, operative, um, you know, China's COVID protesters have become targets of Beijing's surveillance state. Police are using data from mobile phones to track down people who participated in nationwide demonstrations against Z's pandemic controls. American companies like Apple has stopped people from using its airdrop feature, shocking many in the West since we in the West believe in this freedom. What does this say about Xi Jinping and what does it say about our country? Armstrong, it says loud and clear that a communist totalitarian system under Z. They will crush their own population if they think it is at a point where it could destabilize their hold on power. And they'll deliver it with a blow that will horrify the free world and horrify pretty much anybody because there's no limit to what they will do to save themselves. We should be speaking out. There's so much influence that we have by just as assuming the moral authority, which is difficult for us now because we've done so many recklessly irresponsible things overseas recently in the last few years, especially since 9-11. But it, you, you have to say something. When you're killing people because they won't wear a mask, whatever the, the current flavor of the month is for excuses, it has an impact because it's visible and social media has made the internal activities visible in spite of the regime's effort to silence it. And in Iran, it's tenfold because the Iranian regime, I think, is in far more precarious a situation than China is right now because China has the ability and will to, to block so much information out, but it's bleeding out of Iran. And the, the connections to, to Iraq afford them an opportunity to get on the air when they're still inside their own country and broadcast videos and get the message out to the outside world. And there's no sign of any 
thing fizzling out. In the past, a lot of us have waited to see if it would fizzle out inside Iran, and the regime was able to extract enough terror or deliver enough terror that it would back, they would back off. But I don't think they're—I don't see signs that that's happening now. And believe it or not, I think one of the central reasons is that Qasem Soleimani is dead. You know, his um, ability to, to suppress that and keep order was unmatched, and he hasn't been replaced by an effective guy. And won't be replaced. You know, Sam, I found it quite fascinating that after three years of COVID, um, President Biden's um, first um, state dinner will be with French President Macron. Obviously, those relationships have, have been frayed. Those relationships have been in tattered. And obviously, this is a sign that Biden is trying to heal the wounds between himself and one of America's greatest allies. Yeah, well, as, as John indicated, we have done more damage to American foreign policy and national security in two years than, than anybody could possibly imagine. This administration has made Jimmy Carter's administration look spectacularly competent. So every key relationship we've got in the world is in tatters. They're desperately trying to fix things on a lot of fronts. So what are they it's, trying to fix with the French? Happen. With the French, and how important is this state dinner? Well, it's very important. Look, you know, people joke about the French and how reliable they are as allies. But look, this is this is maybe the oldest alliance we've got, right? I mean, in the American Revolution, who were the guys who showed up on our shores and actually fought side by side with the Continental Army to free the colonies? Those were French troops, right? Not just volunteers, but a formal alliance. When Pershing went to take the American army in World War One to France, what did he do? He went to the tomb of Lafayette and said, Lafayette, we are here. That was a clear statement of we're here to pay our debt to you guys. So all kidding about the French aside, this is a very old, very key relationship. And given that, when you manage to damage it, when you manage to really put it in tatters, you're doing a whole bunch of things wrong. Um, Mr. Keyes, you've already seen the signs. Uh, now it is a fact that the House will be controlled by Republicans. How much will this imp impact foreign policy, and where will it can and will it have the greatest uh, impact? Given the fact that Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans have made it clear, the days of um, sending all that money where billions are unaccounted for to Ukraine are over. I, I, it remains to be seen from my optic. I don't think that McCarthy is the right guy for speaker. And there's so much talk, but the Republican establishment has done so little for so long and let things go and drift. And we are in this situation because of both parties. You can't blame it all on the Democrats. The, the Republican leadership has failed the United States. They failed conservative people in the country, and they failed the whole nation. And they talk a good game, but I haven't seen anything. We don't need hearings for the next two years. We need action. We need substantive action. And McCarthy, I, I haven't seen anything to instill confidence in me that he's got the ability to do what is required. They need to stop the trajectory of what we're doing and where we're headed, because we are headed into the abyss as a nation. And if they, they don't step up and do things and not just talk about things, the soundbite, we're just going to continue to pick up speed towards the abyss. So, Sam, 
the House, now that it will control all the committees, control their legislative agenda, should they not pursue Hunter Biden investigation? No, 100% they should pursue it, and they should pursue it aggressively. And the Hunter Biden case, you know, is not really about ultimately about corruption. I mean, clearly it is, but that's not the real point. The point is you're talking about contacts between the Biden family, that includes Joe, and the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese intelligence, first and foremost, before we get to Ukrainians, Russians, every other uh, force on the planet. I mean, we're talking about a, an intelligence operation. We're talking about a threat to national security. We're talking about the compromise of the Oval Office. It's about as dire a threat as you could possibly imagine. Should they pursue that? 100%. But I agree absolutely with my old friend, John. Uh, enough talk, guys, if you in the Republican Party, if you are really the opposition to the Democrats and this radical agenda, then roll up your sleeves and start doing something. Stop mouthing platitudes. Let's put some points on the board and let's actually fight. When you look around the world, there, there are, there's ample indications that the chaos and the disorder and turbulence that is permeating more and more countries is a, there is a direct correlation to a lack of moral leadership from the West. The West is disconnected from many things. It's hard to read us from other countries. That's one of the complaints I hear overseas. As an example, when you were mentioning about the World Cup, the Middle East, Gulf countries in particular, they have forecasted plans on paper for 2040. They plan way over the horizon. And they put together teams that execute, and they've got their financial resources to deliver. We, I wonder how far out in advance we even look anymore in the United States, much less have a plan. We're not heading off any problems. It seems like every problem hits the desk at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Nothing is avoided. Everything lands there. And at certain points, every administration, and Carter was the last one that was really victimized by this, you lose your ability to manage crisis when your decision-making matrix is completely overloaded. And then you're just responding and trying to put out small fires because you don't have time to think and reflect, and you have no over-the-horizon strategy to avoid problems from reaching the point where they're shooting. And it seems like now everything boils over. Every pot is boiling over quickly, and we're just watching from afar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.